0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagor Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at BellFlight.com. Later in the program, a look at an innovative Anglo-American space launch company that aims to revolutionize operationally responsive space. But first, joining us today, as he does on most Mondays, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. To look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind, Byron Thanks so very much for joining us. It wouldn't be Monday without you. Always a pleasure, Vago, and an honor, too. Same here, and you're joining us from the road, so I appreciate that even more. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security, sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain leading air show was sponsored by farmborough international and leonardo drs uh byron uh, as usual happy monday Great note. Uh, quiet week. Um, a lot of factors going on. China extending—you uh, know—it had live fire exercises for about four days. Now it's ex- uh, extending exercises in the region. Tensions uh, running high. A lot of American diplomacy in the region. Uh, Anthony Blinken was in uh, Manila uh, just recently. But, you know, and then we've got the the climate, healthcare, uh, and tax measure that also passed in the House is going to be uh, um, uh, the Senate passed it, and the House is going to be approving it sort of walk us through sort of the top elements of, of, of stuff that we should be thinking uh, about and and how, and maybe let's start with China, Taiwan, and then get to the the climate, healthcare, and tax measure.
1: Well, look, Vago, I don't think, you know, certainly the volume of the air incursions that China made into the uh, air identification zone that Taiwan has is high. Uh, you know, we've kind of almost done a near record uh level of incursions in a matter of a couple of days. Uh I think you have to go to October 2021 to see a, a similar level of activity. And that was over an entire month. Um the missile firings uh obviously are, are new and different. And but but you know I think you have to ask yourself, does this really change? <clears throat> Will this really change defense spending? Um and and I have to think no. I mean, it, you know, is it going to cause Congress or the DOD to move with alacrity on some element of spending that they hadn't looked at before? I, I don't think yet, at least I haven't seen any open source information, that, that there's something new here. It's just a very potent reminder of, you know, China's willingness to, to flex its uh, military muscle, you know, to try and intimidate Taiwan. And, and once again, I don't think they're doing a very good job of that
0: uh and uh and indeed we're going to be hearing from uh aia's uh, uh president and CEO uh, Eric Fanning tomorrow talking about some of these very issues um, obviously you know going from supply chain to tensions uh with uh, China and Russia and how to um you know effectively figure out how to wean ourselves from, um, uh, the relationships, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately we've had for, for many decades, obviously, uh, that's, that's, uh, irrevocably irre- 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 changed and changing. Um, right. we, uh, look like we're on the verge of $60 billion. That appears to be the consensus number. It's what we're getting from Michael Herson and the team on Friday. Um, um, what's your sense and what do you see interesting in either NDAA or appropriations, right? I mean, because obviously this is a moving ball, uh, and fortunately it's the ball that's moving forward.
1: Yeah. Um, well, again, I think the question is if that's a number, you know, when, when are the appropriations going to get done? We're probably going to see something get done after the election, at least from an appropriation standpoint, you know, once again, we're going to start the year with a continued resolution. Um, there hadn't been anything. I mean, I suppose the new and incrementals would be, you know, whatever that final compromise is, you know, unfortunately, the, the uh, Senate had kind of marked to a higher level and the House had marked pretty much the level of the president's request. I'm talking about the appropriations bills. Um, you know, the incrementals, I, I don't know. I, I don't think uh, there's always a question, you know, squaring some of the things between the authorizers and the appropriators. But... At least from appropriations, I'm still working with the assumption, uh, and I don't, like I'll express a different view. But you know, let, let's see what comes together after the election, and maybe even in the, into early next year. NDAA, you know, it, it looks like we're kind of on track for something. Um, I would personally be surprised if it if it gets done in in September uh, before the start of the fiscal year. But you know, kind of the normal is that November December time frame, and I think that's probably. Not great, not optimal, but, but it's the way things have been working in recent years.
0: Um, uh, obviously, uh, a, a big win uh, for uh, the president uh, in terms of the climate, health care and, and tax uh, measure. And I want to talk about both uh, pieces of this, right? Because we also had CHIPS Plus go through uh, you know, pretty quickly. Let's start yep. with the climate, climate, health and tax measure. Um, what do you see there uh, and how do you think it's going to be impacting uh, the aerospace and defense sector?
1: Well, not much, really, um, obviously, specifically on the aerospace defense sector. Um, you know, maybe the the excise tax on, uh, on share buybacks was kind of an interesting new twist. Um, I, I suppose more broadly, you know, is this a win? That, you know, this kind of came out of nowhere, right? You know, everybody kind of thought this whole, you know, build back better, um, you know, a new iteration on that. It was dead because um, Senator Manchin from West Virginia was opposed to it. And all of a sudden this deal comes out of uh, left field and lo and behold, it gets passed. Um, Now, you know, for me, I suppose the real question is, so what's it, what's it going to say or mean for uh, the president's prospects in, um, in the 2024 election, not just his prospects, but the, the democratic party, prospects in the 2024 election you know at the end of the day look people aren't going to see the impact of this um you know by the time they go start pulling uh, levers in in, the, in these november elections so i suppose to a degree that um i mean come on you're, you're not going to be moderating inflation or some of the other things that have probably given uh the Republicans uh, an advantage, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, I mean, I, I certainly think it says that, uh, the Democrats are not in disarray that they really could get a major piece of legislation through, um, how that plays out. You know, I, I like I said, I, I don't think people are going to be seeing the direct impact of, of that on their, their, their daily lives. Uh, you know, like a lot of things in Washington it's going to take time to filter through. Um, for me, you know, Split party control in, uh, as a result of the 2022 midterms, if that's, if that's the outcome, probably means not a whole lot's going to get done in the last two years of uh, the first term of the Biden administration.
0: And, and again, right, I mean, that was Dov Zakheim's uh, uh, takeaway. Uh, last week um, where he said, look, I, I don't think he gets all that much done um, domestically, which is why uh, he has an expectation that Biden's full focus is actually going to be uh, international. And, and clearly um, there are um, you know, some on the Democratic side urging the president, you know, don't run again, Clear the yep. way for uh, a, a successor, uh, and then spend your time actually achieving more of your agenda in the limited time that you 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 have in office. Because obviously, Democrats have been searching, you know, have wanted to do everything that's in this measure or most of what's in this measure for for the past several um, decades. Uh, yep. Speaking of several decades, uh, the Chips uh, Act uh, was. Uh, much, much smaller, was supposed to be a microelectronic measure, and it grew to a much, much longer package uh, to assure American technological superiority over a longer term, both supply chain independence as well as long-term investment. How do you assess uh, what was passed uh, and is ultimately going to be going into law and what it means?
1: Well, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, come on, you know, a lot, most times on this show we're talking about weapons systems, uh, you know, things that, that directly relate to um military power. Um and really I think what's important about this act is it's going to get to some of the elements that under grid or they're they're the foundational supports of the nation's ability to generate military power <clears throat> in a competitive sense. Um and and I think that's important. You know, again it's it's not necessarily um, a direct beneficiary to, um, you know, this is money that's going to be going directly into the major defense contractors, second and third tier contractors. But if it helps free up U S reliance on, uh, on, on supply chains that could be very vulnerable in a heightened state of global tension, um, that should be a good thing. Uh, again, it'll take a while to play out, but um I think that that's the way I look at this. And I think, you know, probably more and more, as we've talked about on previous uh, podcasts, Vago, I think this kind of thinking about national security from a much broader standpoint in terms of what's your resiliency, you know, how how do you translate economic power, human capital into, you know, bringing those elements to uh, national security needs. um, That's why something like this is important. It's not just about the Department of Defense's budget.
0: Um, Let let me ask uh, about, you know, you you mentioned uh, resiliency and one of the challenges uh, that we face is, you know, we're providing a lot of hardware to the Ukrainians and it's important for us to do that uh, because it's not important, you know, for for me, it's not just keeping Ukraine from losing, Russia is the one who has to lose, so we can't be doing a half measure here, uh, right, we don't want the Ukrainians uh, necessarily to lose, but we don't want them to win. This has got to be binary. They have to win and the Russians have to lose. Otherwise, Putin is just going to keep going and, and cause all manner of other uh, challenges. And we also can't self-deter ourselves. Oh my God, what is he going to do next? He's the one who started this. I mean, this is almost like being squeamish about Adolf Hitler starting a war. Like ultimately you've got to finish it. Uh, right. Otherwise you're you're looking at bigger problems. But, you know, we still have not seen the sort of surge that I think is necessary to replenish American stocks, right? No, you and I have and talked. I
1: mean, yeah, absolutely. So how, do we,
0: so how do we do this and what are the trade-offs? Because the department, it seems like one CEO after another has told um, the Pentagon, hey, look, I will surge production, but I need you to commit to the particular weapon. And invariably, the military services go, well, we're, we're not going to commit. We see some other interesting ideas. We don't know. I mean... It, are we past that? Isn't is it time to sort of go? Hey, we're going to build new systems, but the focus also has to be on volume, and that might mean some some trade offs and and making some commitments, right? Um, do we how need we, to change how we think about this?
1: Well, you know, there's a whole other discussion to be had about reforming the budget system. You know, the fact that Congress passes budgets on an annual basis, right there, um, is an issue, and and I. Don't necessarily agree with some of the squeamishness that's been uh, evidenced by some of the major defense contractors who are quite happy, you know, buying stock back uh, willy-nilly, and yet who aren't willing to make an investment in some things that you'd say, well, come on, you know, you you've got. <laughs> strategic planning staffs um you can see where some of these national defense needs are going to head and and commercial enterprises make these kind of bets all the time so somebody's if you know somebody should be stepping up to the plate on, on some of these issues and and quite frankly i think if some of the current contractors don't there may well be others who do um but the capacity you know uh, and I, I i just again i'm um saw this i'm in maine right now and uh you know the help wanted signs are up here the uh you know there's there some real fundamental labor shortages that are going on so how quickly um this industry could actually turn on a dime and you know replenish our own magazines uh which i think should be done um I go back to the earlier observation on kind of a whole of government approach to this, because you really have to get to these, these foundational issues. It's not just, Hey, here's, here's more money. Um, but do you have the people? Do you have the, the plants and facility? Do you have the the capital investment to actually meet this stuff? And as I said, I think contractors probably could be doing more leaning forward in this kind of environment, unless they are so there's such a radically different view um, that, to me is at odds with uh, a consensus that we're kind of entering a a new and different security era. And um, I'm still surprised that, that people seem to be holding back.
0: Um, let me, uh, we, we've got a, a couple of minutes left. I have to ask you about the week ahead. but first you did an analysis uh, of uh, June uh, earnings. We had a yeah. uh, uh, sort of an enormous number of companies reporting as they do uh, every quarter. It's a lot like the post office. So, uh, when the mail arrives for holiday season, you have to you have to go through it all and you, you have went to through, through all it. the mail, yep. Yep. <laughs> right? Yeah. You looked at operating margins, you looked at buyback, you looked at growth, what were some of the, right? Because I like it, you know, you do exhibit, exhibit two, Right, sales and operating margin. You broke it down in even in terms of uh, of platform segments. Yeah, what were the takeaways in, in in assessing this batch of earnings that jumped out at you?
1: Um, well, again, I, the buybacks they weren't as high as the, the first quarter, but you know they're still moving at a pretty sporty rate, at least for the largest contractors. Um, you know, defense outlays. They don't uh, on a you know a lot of people, myself included, write about the data when it's reported by the treasury there's not a high correlation to actual, uh, you know, percentage growth rates, but they kind of follow a trend. And so a lot of the organic sales declines we saw in the first and second quarters, you know, kind of matched these seven to 10% declines we saw in, um, I use kind of a blended number from procurement RDT and, and, uh, and operations and maintenance outlays. Hopefully that'll reverse. Um, operating margins, you know, for better or for worse, they're still heavily influenced. Um, I don't, well, I guess they are weighted that the Boeing, um, operating performance really is kind of an exception, but when you look at kind of sector averages, it's still been a, 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 an issue and hopefully someday, you know, they stop taking charges on, on programs, but in the same breath, you know, the, the margins themselves are still relatively range bound, um. But again, Vago, I just kind of wonder—you know—when you see companies struggling with these supply chain issues, with with hiring or retaining people, you know, you kind of ask yourself. I ask myself, you know, are these companies um, running margins uh, at, you know, at the expense of kind of their long-term, longer-term resiliency, their longer-term ability to uh, to meet the nation's defense needs? I just think it's 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 something that needs more attention here.
0: And uh, very quickly, what uh, should the audience be paying attention to this week?
1: Well, obviously, just the the repercussions of the China Taiwan. What 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 really came out of those exercises? You know, I had some very preliminary judgments. Obviously, what's going on between Russia and Ukraine still matters. I know uh, Royal United Services Institute. I downloaded a report that they just released on um, the apparent Russian reliance on. Uh, Western semiconductor technology that has been uh, discovered in um, in the weapon systems the Ukrainians have captured. Um, there's a uh, what space missile defense conference that takes place in Huntsville. Uh, so senior leadership, um, you know, is talking about uh, those issues in in Huntsville this week. There's also a small sat satellite conference in uh, utah that tends to be more technical in nature there's still a couple of companies that are going to continue uh you know finishing out the earnings season uh hopefully it gets a little quieter in august uh but i've found sometimes that's famous last words and just when you think it's going to get quiet something comes up to make our world all very interesting again not that it's not interesting
0: exactly so it's, it's always it's always interesting Berman thanks so very much for joining us really appreciate it bon voyage and look forward to having you back on again next week thanks a lot
1: thanks a lot Fago. cheers man bye.
0: And joining us now is Kevin Seymour, the CEO of Astrius, an innovative Anglo-American space launch company he helped co-found in 2019 that can loft payloads uh, into orbit as heavy as about 1,800 pounds uh, from the back of operational transports like the C-17. He is also a retired Royal Navy captain uh, who is a legendary Harrier and F-35 pilot. Kevin, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to have you on the program.
2: Welcome, great to be here. Uh,
0: and uh, it was a pleasure seeing your team uh, at uh, Farnborough. Uh, and you guys are in an extraordinarily hot market. Uh, and your approach is very different from that of your competitors at a time when there is a massive demand for truly uh, flexible operational space, uh, especially in contested areas to be able to launch on uh, demand with not as much fixed infrastructure. What's different about your approach from other companies in the field?
2: The first thing we looked at is, is how, can we, uh, how can we bring a sovereign capability that, to the UK? But more importantly, that made a difference in the way the rest of the field were, uh, were launching. And to do that, if you can get a launch from the air with maximum flexibility, with a platform that can go uh, globally, uh, i.e., can air to air refuel then you have an ability to reach um, orbits um, and inclinations that others don't. Um, That doesn't mean that uh, we're not uh, complementary to the others, but it just gives us an angle where a customer may wish to go to a specific place uh, in space, and we can provide that by having a flexible platform. The other thing with it is, as long as the C-17 can get airborne, then we can go pretty much on time. And the last thing really in terms of, uh, of, of, of getting it airborne, you know, customers these days um, would, would look to, and I look both, both from a commercial and military aspect, they'll look to get their constellation or satellite up and running as soon as possible for whatever task it's going to do and being able to launch through the weather and above the weather to ensure that that uh, satellite or uh, payload is put to wherever it needs to go to. Is, uh, is something that we're able to do very, very quickly. The last thing is, um, in terms of the, the responsiveness, um, responsive space is something we've seen that really since the Ukraine crisis has really started to drive the market in a certain direction. And we felt that, or I felt certainly, that the, the ability to respond quickly um, and we can do that with, with, with the C-17. And as long as we have a, uh, a launch vehicle ready to go, then we can integrate it quickly and launch very, very quickly. And I think that is the way that the, the industry will, will begin to go in, in, into the near future.
0: Um, let me uh, p- pull on that a little bit, right? Uh, the technology you guys are, are using was something the United States looked at to launch ICBMs decades ago, uh, drop them out of the back of a transport plane on a pallet, drug shoots, and off, uh, off the uh, rocket uh, goes. Um, how did you guys get Right, because a lot of your competitors are, whether it's Virgin Orbit, is using a 747 or Strato Launch is using a unique aircraft, whereas you're using an operational military aircraft. And indeed, the technology you guys are using has been used to support uh, missile defense tests in the Pacific where um, uh, rockets to be intercepted are launched in this way. How did you guys get access to the technology and where are you guys in operationalizing it from a space launch perspective?
2: So I think you can answer that in two ways. The first one would be from a C-17 perspective. I think you look at uh, across the industry as a whole, you'll find that the commercial space operating with either government agencies or military agencies is becoming closer. It's a close-knit um, delivery of a system, uh, whether it be NASA and SpaceX or you know, indeed us and, and whoever comes along to, uh, to, 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 to work with us, whether it be USAF or, or RAF. But from a perspective of the C seventeen, it you know it, it is a we see that as an opportunity whereby from answering the UK sovereign question, where it has a C seventeen um, squadron, that we can utilise that um, in, in that sort of partnership to deliver this capability, and the same in the US as well um, from the USAF. But and of course there are options here where we can. Um, Lease those aircraft from from the DoD. With respect to the uh, the actual launch vehicle itself, um, I was doing some consultancy work uh, as and um, was approached on Preswick itself, which is how I got into the program. Um, we know that the uh, the initial capability that was being looked at was derived from the uh, Missile Defense Agency, and so um, when. The discussions began to fall of a bit sour in terms of the relationship on how this was going to go forward in Scotland. Um, I looked at that and thought there's an opportunity here to answer the uh, the UK sovereign question, but at the same time, I, I thought this would be disruptive technology. If we can get this to work uh, on a commercial scale, then um, I think this would this would benefit both um, the UK, and US. And then pretty much every other country that operates C seventeen. So in um, in doing that, I I sought uh, from Scotland and through the original um, uh, company who were uh, um, looked looked at doing this with with Glasgow Presswick and saw can I effectively take that idea and run with it? And the answer to that was yes. So I formed the company with this, we got huge uh, support from the Department of Commerce, the the, um, the Department of, um, uh, sorry, DOD here, MOD to a certain extent, and and support from the UK embassy in, in Washington. So from that, we looked at the capability. And the reason, the main reason why this works and why we have access is the strength of my team from uh, retired generals uh, in the US to uh, retired wing commanders from either um, Vandenberg or down at the Cape, plus the team over in the UK, we are answering that strategic relationship uh, question. And into the June 2020 strategic agreement of the US to help the UK uh, get uh, its own uh, sovereign launch capability was key to this. And in pressing that home, um, we then began to get access and get the idea together to the extent you saw at Farmville the announcement that was made. The idea is not new, uh, as you say, which is actually a strength for us because it's a, uh, a tried and tested system. So I'm very, very comfortable in uh, in the way we've done it. And indeed, we've taken it a stage further and I've, you know, I've looked at this in terms of Okay, that's how it how it's done within the uh, Missile Defense Agency. How can we can now commercialize that to really uh, solve the sovereign launch capability for the UK?
0: And uh, where are you guys uh, in the process of commercializing uh, the capability? Right. Walk us through the time frame and the time scale uh, that you're looking uh, toward um, sort of. I don't want to say first unit equipped, Kevin, but, you know, fielded capability
2: or available capability. So we, uh, as you know, from Farnborough, are very excited about the uh, the announcements there with uh, uh, Northrop Grumman and its squadron. Um, So we will uh, we are now working closely with those to to uh, really refine the launch vehicle and what it looks like and its capability. And indeed, I've set them follow on targets to how we can then take this forward from its next generation. So it's not just confined to today. And how can we then take that into the arena that we need to do in terms of um, really operationalizing uh, the the launch vehicle and the capability itself into uh, a space program or a space uh, launch program where we can launch a global winning, you know, eight hundred kilograms, uh, and then increasing that as we go. And pretty much to date, we've got a, we've got the solution on that. We'll continue to refine that through the rest of this year. Aiming for a spring 2024 launch. You know, obviously the trick in this is then getting beyond
0: 2024 and what the strategic business plan is and what the growth uh, strategy is. Uh, And you mentioned the partnership with Scotland, which is very important. You guys were in the space zone right across, uh, right across the way from uh, the the Scots, and obviously, and right across from the UK Space Agency, and obviously Ian Annett uh, well, former, uh, Royal Navy Commodore, uh, is, is there now as the deputy, uh, director Is somebody who's a very, very innovative thinker. Um, you know, w- w- walk us through how the UK government is actually helping this, because as you said, I mean, the number one priority for the government is that sovereign space capability.
2: Yeah, I think we, you know, I, I said to you, we're trying to answer that, uh, and how can we do this uh, in a different way? Um, there are, multiple opportunities that are being fielded in inside the UK but I felt that because we offer something different because we offer to the MOD as well as the commercial side almost something for nothing because it has the C-17s how can we take that relationship and quid pro quo for for each other um, deliver um, uh, payloads or uh, capabilities for Um, whether it be Space Command, the MOD, uh, or, you know, uh, CGHQ, um, whilst at the same time offering some commercial uh, opportunities as well. So what does does that actually mean? What it means is the fact that, yes, you can deliver those, those, those sort of capabilities, but in order to do that, what we may find ourselves, there are opportunities for, for example, our Air Force to form a cadre of reserves. We'll teach them how to integrate. Um, um, a, a payload will use that uh, in much the same way the skills I learned from the long lead skills in terms of the carrier program that if we can work with our colleagues in the US, uh, US Air Force or, um, or, or commercial indeed to, to teach uh, and learn how to do that from a UK perspective I think that's a very very strong uh, opportunity and capability that we can offer both the MOD and the Air Force virtually for nothing
0: and where do you guys want to be uh, in about five years? Where right? I mean, what's the strategic growth plan, and how does the United States uh, play into that? Right. I mean, if you talk to Jay Raymond or anybody else, operationally responsive space is at the top of everybody's list, and the way that you guys operate, like any air launch carrier gives a more flexible range of options. And indeed, you guys using military transport planes gives you even potentially a broader range than anybody else has. You know, how, what, what's that strategic growth plan look like as you look out five to 10 years?
2: The real strength here, there are 287, I think, uh, C-17s around the world. But let's just focus on the UK, US initially. Um, what we can offer here is a, a strategic capability either between the UK and US working together in this realm um, or indeed it's separately if it needs to, but it is answering that responsive capability. The other thing it is, and dare I, dare I use the expression that we, we may be able to uh, offer an expeditionary responsive capability uh, in, in this field by the fact we can take a mobile clean room with us um you, you you know i see this as you know this doesn't happen in the industry today so we can make a difference um and i think um, in the discussions we had at uh, at, at Farnborough that certainly we've got the uh, the ear the of uh of the, of the space command um over in the us and um i'd like to think so in the uk as we as we go forward so what do i see um i see uh, huge growth potential. I see us being a winner in the market. The market will consolidate, but I think we'll be one of those with those winners. Um, the other thing I also see, which I think is 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 fantastic for both the um, uh, US and and the UK UK especially, is the fact that we're able to grow uh, the space industry in and around certainly Scotland, which I think is hugely important. The strategic agreements between the UK and the US, we can certainly uh, nurture those and take those to to a different level. And how we how we deliver, and I think it's a differentiated. You know, we we have that strategic linkage between the UK and the US, and I just see that in five to ten years' time that we can launch from a UK-US perspective, either from either country, it doesn't matter, um, launching capabilities that are mutually beneficial to both. The other thing. Um, which I think, you know, I mentioned right at the start, the 287 of these things. Some of our allies also um, want to try and do this. And I just think that there are strategic areas of the world where from a UK-US perspective, we would want allies to have equally responsive capabilities where they have C-17s, Middle East, uh, Australasia, those uh, those sort of continents. And I would love to see this capability fielded in and around those uh, those areas as well.
0: As much as you can put uh, payloads in space, whether military or commercial, you would also be able to use this as a novel offensive missile launcher. Talk to us a little bit about the opportunities uh, there.
2: The way the world is going right now and the threats we've got from these modern weapons um, leads uh, me to conclude that we need to maybe start tackling things in a different way, um, i.e. the rules are going to be ripped up and to do that it may be that you want to start tackling these, uh, these capabilities and threats from the air or indeed using different capabilities in, that can fit inside our payload bay um, and the, the critical thing here is for a country that has a C-17, it doesn't matter whether it's loading a sack of rice, um, munitions, or indeed one of these type of capabilities that will, will help to uh, defend in our national interests. It's just the C-17. It's very difficult to differentiate, especially in the dark, what anybody's doing. It can, it can taxi out, it can be loaded with whatever you want it to be loaded and covertly go off and do what it needs to do. That is a huge strength. And I think in terms of my team and the way I'm currently playing it, I think I underplayed deliberately a little bit the national security interests here. But I think given what happened in Ukraine this year and where things appear to be going, um, there is a huge strength there in that being able to covertly deal with some of these threats in a different way. And I'd like to say that we we can offer that.
0: Kevin, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, fair winds following seas to your team uh, in uh, what is an absolutely fascinating uh, endeavor. Wish you the best of the luck and look forward to staying in touch in the process. Thanks so much. Thank you. An absolute pleasure to join you.